Hello and welcome to this month's Art Monthly Radio Show. I'm Chris McCormack, uh, Assistant Editor and Production Manager at Art Monthly. And today I'm joined by Chris Veit-Vosselak, a writer and curator based in London, who will be discussing his feature, How to Improve Your Algorithm. Lan Absigogati, a writer and research student at University College London, who who has just reviewed the current exhibition at FACT Liverpool, Time and Motion, Redefining Working Life. And finally, Omar Khalif, writer and recently appointed curator at Whitechapel, who will be discussing his feature concerning art criticism in the digital sphere. I would like to start with Chris, if I may, um, whose feature concerns uh, the reclaiming of the digital landscape. Um, you start your feature by discussing um, William Gibson and his sort of, um, I suppose, his sort of excitement of discovering a, a Walkman um, and finding this sort of interior world that he sort of inhabits. Um, I think a lot of your feature sort of in, in sort of involves this idea of, um, um, yeah, this sort of where we fit as humans in relation to technology and also as much as we inform it. Um, do you want to talk a bit about why you chose William Gibson as a sort of starting point? Well, I mean, it's quite an alluring anecdote, I think. And, yeah. and it's just one of those things where, um, you're, you know, you're listening to Desert Island Discs and then yeah. he's just chatting away and then it just seems like this kind of obvious meeting point of technology, uh, this interest of... I mean, he didn't come up with the word cyberspace, but yeah. it's more like how we conceptualize a word like that and how we think of it. And so if he's just strolling along with music and then thinking about uh, computer technology mm-hmm. alongside that, all of a sudden, it's, it's, I mean, for me, it was just a little bit of a, an exciting little brainwave, I suppose. But then the more you think about it, the weirder it gets. You know, it's mm-hmm. quite nice. He's talking about intimacy and all this uh, sort of things that I think are concerns with technology, obviously. And it was just a, a very tactile way of thinking mm-hmm. about it. So... It was also nice in terms of that um, maybe real-world crossover. You know, if he's having that experience in real life um, and then turning it into a kind of fictionalized state that then popularizes the idea in a certain way. So it's also a way of thinking about the dissemination of the yeah. idea, I suppose, too. Yeah, absolutely. And you sort of sort of lily pad, or you jump off from there into sort of other kind of narrative of other artworks and you talk about um the sort of irish artist fiona moran um and she sort of evokes a very complex storyline yeah her piece um she'd done an interview with leo melamud who's uh, who was the head of the chicago mercantile exchange and he's just um similar to gibson's story just talking about kind of casual encounters that led to maybe real-world innovations, I suppose, kind of filtered through science fiction in some sense, which mm-hmm. is kind of why the, the two anecdotes side-by-side side appealed to me, I suppose, where Melamud had just come up with this story in reaction to um, the, uh, the you know, the golden disc being sent yeah. out in space in the 70s, and for him it was this obvious idea that, you know, what if somebody did find it? But then in reaction to that, creating this... Um, sort of information sharing system that then became the basis for uh, Globex and something that kind of revolutionized stock trading. Yeah, I have to say, I found it quite an alarming realization actually <laughs> when he talked about this science fiction narrative and how that actually did inform sort of stock exchange ideas. Well, then I guess for me that was the interesting start to this uh, uh, piece because it's, I mean, obviously the past few decades more and more science fiction in real life has become crossed over more and more and it's it's not really a question of why i mean obviously technology is moving very fast but it's also a question of maybe how and how it mm-hmm. impacts us and why we've 
started to relate to it in particular ways, I suppose. And so it was trying to think about those sorts of things. Um, I mean, like for me, the start for this piece was more thinking about maybe cultural people like Brian Eno and yeah. and their sort of influence on us and where their ideas have started from. And, and generally, they've started from kind of cybernetics places, which is, you know, kind of a science fiction idea, but then putting it into... But it's also a very bureaucratic mm-hmm. idea. It's just kind of an organizational method. So, um, you know, just thinking about how these things kind of seep into our lives and started to... Uh, well, seemingly control the, the world around us when actually what I wanted to do was reconnect with, with those sort of tactile experiences and wonder, you know, how, how, what our relationship to them is, I suppose. Yeah, you do talk a lot about, well, you, t- you do sort of hit upon that idea of tactility. You know, you mentioned this notion of an embrace uh, quite a few times, actually, this sort of idea of where we sort of interface um, with the technology and the systems themselves. Um, I think looking at sort of Fiona Marin, um, you know what she evokes is quite uh, poetic in a way. These sort of cuts between both this quite unique character, this melamid, yeah. and also these images of these power cables that run deep under the ocean. Yeah, the optic cables yeah. and this kind of very physical uh, evocation of you know what, how these things run. You know, and and what she's showing as well is when it goes wrong. Basically, you know, mm-hmm. they're kind of finding when the cables don't work, and yeah. then they kind of trawl underground in the sea and fix them. And it's just mm. sort of. It is, it's, you know, the kind of systems that Melamud is talking about in terms of stock exchange rely on those wires, and so then it's kind of thinking about it. And the installation itself had some of those wires there, you know, just kind of, I mean, she had several kilometers worth uh, in a tiny little cube, basically, Mm -hmm. about two inches squared. And so, you know, that was kind of, yeah, several kilometers worth of the optic cable just there, and you're kind of looking at it, and you're, you know, she's got some of the, the equipment that they're using in the video there as well, and so sat amongst some of Melamud's writing. So it kind of positions it all quite nicely. Um, and I guess, I mean, that that sense of tactility as well was also finding, I mean, the way we've all maybe been led to talk about some of these digital or real-world debates generally focuses exclusively on digital realms, which is right in one sense. But, you know, like with the Gibson... Uh, anecdote it's these things start generally with more kind of personal and tactile experiences mm-hmm. so it's kind of trying to then you know i was experiencing several installation and very physical uh, exhibitions that i thought were relevant to the debate but then weren't being talked about mm-hmm. in the debate so it's also trying to find a way to talk about those things that were relevant to some of these more um kind of say new aesthetic or those sorts of yeah, debates. yeah you talk about uh, Dennis, is it Dennis McNulty and Simon Denny? But it, I think it's also that okay, just getting back to the moment of the tactility of that first moment where you sort of, well, our closeness with the material in a way, which is you know we're all sat here with iPhones or whichever kind of these tablets and so on. And I think that is the well, I know that it, it's, it's constantly with me twenty four hours a day. You know, well, yeah, and, and next you're, to you my know, bed, you're rubbing your fingers yeah. on the the screen, and and you know that that. That's only going to get more, yeah. I suppose, in the next few years. I mean, I guess I kind of took it quite literally in terms of physical installations that mm-hmm. we were walking around. But I think, yeah, it, in the same way that the Gibson quote is about him ta- walking through the world in, you know, with headphones on and, and physically feeling the music and then thinking about how technology will, will be intimate and mm-hmm. physical in that sense. I think, you know, if just imagine, say, where the, the kind of touchscreen technology is going to be more on our bodies or, you mm-hmm. know, something in that sense where it's more... The more we interact with it, the more 
Yeah, the closeness that we have with it and the way in a way, you're talking more about how it actually informs our understanding in a way of how we feel or touch. Is that is that part of your argument or is that a bit too Well, I think in some sense maybe uh, I don't know, I like say discussions about say big data and that sort yeah. of thing. I feel like talking about things like the NSA that over and over again are maybe scapegoats where mm-hmm. they kind of project the problem elsewhere when actually it is through our own, you know, everyday touches mm-hmm. and and actions that those things are more um happening, you know, and so it's more trying to relocate that sense of maybe responsibility or awareness back to uh, the more everyday or the yeah, quoted, and, even the banal, I guess, yeah, in some and a, a more bodily yeah. uh, recognition of mm-hmm. it, I suppose. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I mean, I, 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 the artist you mentioned, I do actually find Dennis McNulty's work really interesting. I, I had not heard of him before, and uh, well, and, it, and I think as well, he, you know, he does installations, but the performances as well are these kind of weird movements between all these different formats. That it's kind of one, not one, or not the other, and so it's this sense of, you know, and if you've got evoking technologies from the past 20 years all kind of right next to each other you know it kind of makes you feel nostalgic for cassette tapes and that sort of yeah. thing which are you know are, you know it's just magnetized mm-hmm. tape and you feel you know it feels more physical as well and so kind of walking between these rooms there's a f- the you know each room might feel like a different decade or something like that and so there's a nice sense of physically encountering different time periods at the same time and how readily we forget different technologies and maybe those physical relationships that we had with those technologies. Yeah, in a way, because we're always pressed up against the moment which we're living. Uh, and so our, we always inform or think that we're at the precipice of the new technological debate or the new kind of frame. Um, I just had this conversation the other day, with, you know, the idea that in the 1980s we would have been talking about high eight technology or, you know, this idea of, and in a way, those kind of frames we always think we're pressed up against. They're kind of, they are a rolling narrative that kind of for these kind of glitches or burps or whatever you want to describe them as you know that throw up kind of lodges or dislodge moments that have occurred throughout history well and i think that like the works that i wanted to focus on have maybe that sense of historiography i suppose and that they're kind of aware of technological history and how it changes and i think like say you know omar mentions you know the acknowledging that say the sound range of vinyl kind of hits us in a more physical way and so that people maybe acknowledge that that technology isn't out of date as such, but just kind of interacts with us in a certain Mm -hmm. way that we can acknowledge. And so it's more, you know, thinking about maybe that same acknowledgement in terms of whether it's, you know, touchpads or, you know, that sort of thing. It's like, yeah, it's quite interesting to see, you know, the history of the iPad is basically from Star Trek, you know, where they just sell the pad and they're, you know, they're they're retrofitting the technology to that to that fantasy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of that. So yeah. it's quite interesting. It is interesting, isn't it? That sort of where we, how we even conjure up or reimagine our own relationship to technology, I guess. Um, I just want to flow through, well, flow through, uh, describe a bit more of uh, Dennis, Dennis McNulty's work, just because I, I don't know how many people would know it. But uh, when he, she, when there's a sort of um, a, a vinyl record and there's a sort of talk using Flowmatic and COBOL programming language. Yes. Um, do you want to describe that just a little bit more detail? Well, this so this is at the end um, of the performance that most recently it was called the Cloud of Soft Equations. I mean, it was in Performer Eleven as uh, called the Eyes of Ayn Rand, and then it was uh, performed in Berlin as well under another name. And um, in this, you've gone through a series of rooms um, where you know uh, 
actors kind of speaking to you. There's been stuff played on MP3. You've had a kind of uh, sort of turn the page children's beat thing, where mm-hmm. you know where you you turn the page of and you kind of stand in a circle and you all turn the page together. So by the end of it, you've come to this room and there's a record playing and it's this sort of heavy sort of Brazilian accent, I think, um, uh, talking about you know encountering his brother-in-law who. Uh, was a programmer sort of by accident, like fixing the Y2K bug. And, okay. and it, I mean, I'm, I know not that much about programming, I suppose. So it's kind of an interesting sort of mini history, sort of like a casual history, yeah. I suppose, where he's talking about uh, COBOL being this programming language that was developed mainly for financial uh, transactions. And then because of things that have kept building on it, essentially it's an out-of-date language, but then it's still in use and so things like the Y2K bug mm-hmm. were out of I think from things that just kept building on that language and so um, yeah I mean it's kind of a funny little mini history of, of programming I suppose happening between this conversation between an actor in front of you and this record that's just kind of there um, playing and yeah <laughs> um, just trying to find ways between your feature and Omar's uh, you talk a little bit about this sort of idea of blurting or kind of, blur, you know, recording online, this idea of, um, uh, what, what do you actually say? You talk, talk about um, spilling spilling our guts um, and this idea of how that sits in, a, in, on, in, digital, in the digital world in a sort of frozen landscape. Yeah, I mean, that, like that itself was a quote from uh, the sort of famous Humdog uh, essay where um, she was very much a participant in some of these early online forums um, and she felt after a while that um, she was kind of uh, commodifying herself as she Mm -hmm. says Um, and it's quite an interesting history with her as well where she um, you know becomes aware of how her self-expression is being used in an online forum I suppose and I mean you know this is 20 years ago that she's warning about it and you know we we still will have these kind of stereotypical, you know, put your breakfast on Twitter yeah. sort of things now where we are kind of feeding into things. Um, and it is that sense, you know, that like Omar's talking about, you know, the, what, the rhythm of blogging isn't necessarily always um, an interesting one necessarily, but it, it, it can, you know, it, it can be glib or it can be uh, in-depth depending on what sort of time people yeah. give to it. So, I mean, I think like with what, he was talking about, you know, if you have a publication online, then it um, gives you more depth, I think, rather than just say like a, you know, hyper allergic um, sort of yeah. quick feed. But yeah, yeah we'll, we'll, can... we'll talk that in more detail with Omar. Um, mm-hmm. Omar, do you want to talk a little bit about uh, your feature? Um, you sort of pick up on, following sort of Chris's point really about, you know, um, the sort of blog uh, the sort of independent voice that against, let's say, sits against the sort of more hegemonic powers of, say, CNN, BBC, these powers that be, and how that sort of model, in a way, has informed or recalibrated the notion of, say, art history, in, se- in a sense, and even how we term art criticism. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about your online life and, uh, you know, what you do? I'm not sure my online life is as interesting <laughs> as as anyone else. Uh, in this room, so I, I won't bore you with that. But I guess that the the idea really was about thinking about how the digital sphere had affected the way that we choose to write and communicate. And uh, Chris touches upon it um, 
I mean, the, the point, the statement spilling our guts is uh, the, the kind of confessional culture is something that I touch upon, the idea that um, through a kind of, that the writing takes on a much more personal and diaristic form, which in a sense enables us to talk to or contradict the, the kind of master narrative or the kind of very, um, I guess, formal language that traditional mainstream news media is, and it's so highly edited and regimented is, I guess, um, one of the, what I think is one of the the pro problematics about that is that the subjectivity within those spheres isn't evident or visible mm -hmm. to us, and they start to reinforce particular positions. And actually, that's where, that's how I begin the essay. Actually, is thinking very much about the role of the critic and the role of the writer. And it came at I, I wrote this at a point where I'd actually stopped writing for uh, about six months. Anything in terms of print publishing whatsoever. And it had to do with a kind of frustration with time frames and time lags and pitching, and I felt kind of a frustration. So I started to ask questions about why the critic actually takes on or plays a particular role and actually how the critic in and of herself or himself embodies this contradiction because they're entrusted with having a particular view um, that people should trust, which is kind of like uh, some a master narrative or speaking from a, a very particular position uh, that we assume. But at the same time, the critic also brings uh, a very personal subjectivity. And I was reading a lot of writing around this time and I actually read uh, one of Chris's pieces about Stuart Morgan and I was looking back and thinking, who are the emblematic critics and how important are they? And I went back through different pages of Art Monthly and started thinking, of, you know, it was it was kind of an act of self-reflection. And ultimately, I think, what I came to was I'm not quite sure exactly um, if if I'm trying to articulate uh, a utopic or positive view about the digital sphere as a space for writing, but what I do what I what I do want to articulate is that we are in in a particular kind of moment where maybe we can there's a possibility to rethink how the role a critic can play and the different forms that that can take. So maybe it's a Twitter feed or maybe it's video. I don't know, but the idea is that I'm, I guess it's a, almost trying to catalyze a question um, for people to think about more than a statement. Yeah, well, you do start, as you said, with the Jean-Francois Lyotard quote, which sort of argues that the master point from which to discuss or the, the master narrative is replaced by a more fractured account. Um, and I think to me, that was an interesting starting point around the idea of actually how we are we trying to reassemble that fractured account? Why would we want to? Um, uh, and also within that fracturing, oddly enough, there's, there's the irony is that actually there's further subjectivity because we've actually encounter, we encounter more egos, which you describe, you know, in the sort of Twitter or twim Tumblr feeds or whichever, wherever, uh, you know, so it's a kind of funny positing of that these kind of contradictions in a way mm -hmm. um, which you I suppose you're elucidating there but uh, I wondered if you want to talk a little bit about uh, you know what you thought about the rise of the ego online well actually it's it's funny because this piece is kind of a twin to a piece that I wrote for Art Monthly in um, 2011 called Performing the Self where I was looking at how artists, um, I, was, I was again using Rosalind Krauss as a lens to think about things and um, actually at that point there was a reevaluation. an artist called Jeremy Bailey who I also reference here um, had written a piece called Performing for the Computer where he's using um, her texts about performing for the video and 
in kind of absorbing it for the computer and talking about how artists, um, one of the most economical and nimble ways for them to uh, present their work is very quite simply by representing themselves and their egos. And actually he discusses how that's actually a formal um, a product of technology and its ability to do particular things and its accessibility. And so I was c coming back and thinking about the, the critic, um, whether the critic had also um, adopted this kind of persona or ego in, in their writing, whether the digital sphere had enabled that. And I guess what, I, I come, what I've come to is, um, is that it, it's, 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 a comp it's a complicated thing because I think... As anyone who knows who tries to make a living as an independent critic, um, you you want you you want more work. You want to survive, yeah. and actually, um, developing an ego, a brand, an identity, a following online enables you to draw that attention. And I guess what I'm thinking about is the compromises that those scenarios um, kind of provoke or create. And so I go into things like thinking about TMS. I, I, I talk about Paris Hilton and Brian Boy, not because. I think that they're um, perfectly allegorical to the uh, perhaps the art critics who are writing, but I do think um, you know we do invest in particular critics. Um, you know, people say that if Adrian Searle likes a show, then it will it will get this many ticket sales. Peter Bradshaw, basically, if you're if you're an art if you're releasing an art house film, if Peter Bradshaw gives you a bad review, then you have no chance of it doing well. And so I was I was thinking about those personalities as well and how we invest things in them. And then I'm losing track here, but no, I mean, no, no. Let me uh, yeah. you talk a little bit about the sort of you know the art forum seen and heard. Now people that mm. may not know that, but it's a sort of online. Uh, a diary, really, but it, it sort of follows quite high-profile or glamorous events, largely, um, both around the, around the world, largely, actually, around the, yeah, completely around the world. Um, and I was thinking about that, and I was also thinking about the sort of historical precedents around that, and it reminded me more of Andy Warhol's diaries, and I was wondering if that, that in a way, was the moment where the sense of the intimacy of the individual was played out in the art world for the first time in a real way. Um, and I was wondering what you thought about, was that, I just wondered from that historical point, is that is that where we're sort of, where we've all sort of been led to really? Yeah, no, I think that's a very, that's a very valid point. And I think it's, uh, I mean, Warhol obviously also had a huge interest in, interest in publishing and with the founding of Interview Magazine and this idea of emphasizing the individual was very kind of key to him. And I, I like the idea that you're, bring back the artist or the, the what Warhol was doing which was thinking about how the context of of the social the social um, informs so much of what we do and obviously with the whole language around relational aesthetics it's it, there, those relationships are much more key but I guess we've seen and heard my my, my, my issue with it actually is that I uh, was asked to write one. I bumped into uh, the editor who I'd come to know socially at an art fair, and he said, "Oh, babes, are you going to? Um, are you going to uh, Belgium? No one else is going there." And it was a very kind of. It felt very seen and heard. And I said, "Yes, I'm going there, and I'm gonna. I could. I could write about this show." And the process of editing it was so 
it was so contrived, it was so problematic because all of the the honesty that I tried to imbue into the text about my experience, the diaristic qualities, were actually all bludgeoned and taken out for a very particular notion of what a diary should be like um, and how particular instances should inform the context of how we look at particular works of art. And so it felt to me that um, there was a kind of... Um, agenda that was at play that wasn't obvious and I then go into later on in the article I talk about link baiting and actually how particular big brands like Art Forum use the guise of the diary or the personal um, as uh, to, to suggest that there, this is something actually genuine and sincere and off the cuff, but actually it's very regimented mm -hmm. and it's merely uh, a strategy really to draw in more figures and more audiences and so I guess that what I was trying to get to at this point was to think about how do we negotiate what is truly sincere um, and what is, I guess, um, an, someone being instrumentalized or trying to work to a different kind of agenda. Yeah, I, I was actually reading when I was reading it, it reminded of um, the phrase comment is free on the Guardian website, which I thought was a really ironic statement, which when you think about it, it's been data mined and trafficked and Google, you know, it's all about this, as you say, link baiting in a way. And how, in a, how as people, I think like, actually it links back to uh, and recalibrated, resourced and, I don't know, play, played out for, a, and I don't want to be negative about it because, you know, capital is one of these forming, you know, it forms a lot of what's around, but, uh, you know, it, it is a driving force behind behind that. No, absolutely. I think we have to think about about capital in all of these contexts because for uh, individuals to survive, I mean, it's an essential thing, but also how do you maintain the quality of things if they aren't, if there isn't resource going back into them? But my question is, my problem is, is that there is a supposed trendiness that kind of seems to develop. Like, for example, I referenced James Bridles' The New Aesthetic, which was a Tumblr blog that he started as a research project. And what was interesting for me about that example was that it was, for him, a really discursive project, and he wanted to share it and to have it as a kind of space that was responsive, that was porous. And then very quickly, you saw marketing firms adopting that and saying, how, inviting James and saying, how do we make our brand more new aesthetic? Um, and he, you saw his popularity shift and rise in a kind of um, unparalleled, for me, really, to see an individual figure who was a writer kind of rise that quickly um, to being to having solo shows at like the National Gallery in Washington to you know being seen as an artist for their writing I, I felt like there was something there about the ego or the, the or the personality that was embodied that somehow was being maybe presented um, or pulled out in, in a kind of contradictory manner and I don't know I, I think also I also then go on to talk about the where it all began, which I think is very, very important, which is um, the kind of l email chain list culture, blogs, forums, and I talk about Rhizomes beginning, and um, I was also thinking about net time and how actually it's a space for a two-way conversation also between peers, which was email lists like Rhizome and mm -hmm. net time are about, and actually how that's something that you can't have in print culture. And I guess that's where I think the digital sphere is the most interesting is actually it's not about the audience engagement or audience development but actually in terms of being able to have a conversation with your peers it's much more instantaneous while as with a print publication if you have a problem of an article because you may think it's racist you may think yeah. it, it's it's 
uh, presenting a particular notion of art history that um, is completely, um, I don't know, um, uh, geared towards a particular agenda. Uh, you have to very much consider how you write it and wait and put that into the hands of an editor and then it's edited and it may appear in another issue. And I just think the conversation is much less active and nuanced in that sense. And I think that's yeah, where... But within that, you get... There's there's two ways of looking mm. at that particular dynamic or that, that situation, mm. really, which is to say that, you know, online, yes, you do get quicker and mm. faster responses, but within that, there is the negative effect that those thoughts aren't formed out properly. Absolutely. They are often trolled or filled with abuse or, you know, people say, by comparison, if you are going to sit down, write a letter and really consider something, you will take a lot more time. You may disregard your, even your own initial feelings and find new ones, uh, and you will contemplate things on a deeper level. Uh, so there is a kind of... I, I think there's, there's good and bad in both models. Mm. Um, certainly in letter writing, I would argue that you do get a better response, but you're yeah. right, it, there is a less active... In, perhaps. Yeah. No, I've, I, I, def I, I highlight that point, and, yeah. for example, Common and Free in the Guardian is a, is a great example because... Basically, it, it it's any article. I mean, I've written for Commonness Free a number of times, and you uh, people who people who have polar opposite views shouting abuse at you. Um, and because was it radio was it Radio Five? I think it's made of was this the sort of radio channels BBC London and so on <laughs> that's filled with that. Yeah, no, phone ins and so on. Absolutely. So I I think that you know overall though the whole point is that I guess. What I want us to, what I want the article to kind of lead to or suggest is actually um, not to suggest that one one is better than the other or or that we should adopt one and not the other, but rather to think about what other forms can criticism take, especially when people's attention spans are shifting and the way that they engage with material has changed so significantly and so radically. And actually, maybe this is a good point also for in Lauren's article where she's talking about the fact show is we are much more... Um, we work much more, we're always on, we're always switched on. And actually, how do we start to consume information in different ways? And so is it through different forms that the, the digital might enable us to do that? So that's something that... I left out there yeah. as an open-ended. I mean, I think, to me, it's more... What I find interesting about your article as well is more about actually how the online or how the digital has informed and shifted the in w the ways in which we use art criticism. Um, and, of course, the initial reaction is, oh, it's depleting our attention spans. We're more likely to sort of have distracted cultural snacking. Mm. Uh, you know, everything's a little bit less clear. We're more likely to skim click, link, close a page, I don't know, answer mm. a telephone call, whatever. Um, but what I'm interested in, what are the positive maybe things that can come out of that? Um, and are there any? You know? Yeah, no, there's, well, A, the issue of access, global access, you know, magazines like the one we're holding now is tied to a very particular distribution model. You can't find this magazine in Egypt, where I'm from, uh, but you can go on point. You could argue that there, against that, that there is the whole digital divide issue, but actually increasingly, I mean, in Egypt, which is a developed, sec supposedly second world country, there was something like 83% of people had a mobile phone. So, uh, you know, 
increasingly technology is becoming something that is seen as essential and necessary. So uh, soon I think that the issue of ac universal access will actually become a truism. So that's one thing. And there is also the ability to immediately respond to particular events and to put in or provoke something. And while I do agree that the studied idea of sitting back and thinking and contemplating what you're actually putting out into the world. There is sometimes an urgency to comment on or, on or develop things, especially, say, with event-based culture, say, if you're looking at performance or something that's very political, I think that your immediate responses are actually very potent because mm -hmm. that's very much about your own experience, and you may come back and choose to reflect on it later, and the internet does allow you, the, the guys in the space, to be able to actually look at something how you felt about something immediately after it happened and then again to reflect on it a little bit later and I think that that's something that's very enriching and also I just think that the autonomy of the individual because in many respects anybody can contribute to that sphere however of course what we've seen recently is I begin by talking about 2003 and the rise of blogging post-invasion of Iraq, uh, which saw a lot of personal individual blogs come to the fore. But actually what we've started to see now is it's very uncommon for individuals to actually maintain uh, blogs. And it's much more common for institutions to develop blogs uh, and for people to try and affiliate or associate themselves with those blogs, whether it's art forum or, or whatever. And I think that that's maybe something that we need to think about is are, is the internet, is that sphere going to start to reinforce the 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 analog structures and hierarchies? And that's maybe my um, my warning or suggestion that we consider where keeping and maintaining the autonomy of that space, um, continuing to own it, um, is something that I think is is very important. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. I'll bring in Lon at this point. Um, Who's reviewed uh, this? Uh, this the, it's actually still, isn't it? The Fact Show in Liverpool, uh, Time in Motion, uh, Redefining Working Life. Um, it sort of opens with this idea of these questions, really, around the changes in our contemporary life and working patterns. You know, the eight hour day is quickly diminished for many, um, certainly, I think, in the art world. Um, <laughs> uh, do you want to start just by opening up some of the premises behind the show and? Um, what it's sort of about, really. Sure. Um, well, I begin my review by talking about um, just briefly how this exhibition seems to follow on from a whole slew of discussions around art and labour and the relationship between leisure time and art or how leisure time is increasingly turned into a form of work. Mm -hmm. um, I referenced the the series at Auto Italia a couple of years ago yeah. that was also called Time and Motion. Um, there's been... There's been some other events at Auto Italia. There's been discussions at the Tate. Um, so there's there's been this whole sort of, I suppose, theoretical discussion around art and labour in the last few years, um, as well as increased forms of activism around groups like the Precarious Workers Brigade mm -hmm. and things like that. So it seems very much on the agenda. And I suppose what the the fact show seems to do is follow on from that and... Um, I, maybe for the first time, I'm not sure if there has been other shows, but actually devote an exhibition to these questions, whereas most of the things that have been going on in the art world seem to be more conferences or discussions. Yeah. So this is an exhibition that is pulling together lots of different work 
around the question of um, the relationship between art and leisure and yeah. work. Um, yeah, and you mentioned where well, you bring in sort of Frank and Lily and Gil- Gilbreth, mm. um, who in a way were the pioneers of uh, sort of breaking down labour into module component parts, mm. uh, the sort of Fordinist beginnings, really. And it was I found it amazing to realise actually they thought they were doing the uh, world good. You know, mm. they were helping the worker. Mm. Um, I guess they didn't realise, you know, RSI. Um, boredom <laughs> that, that would come out of that um, and the sort of subsequent shifts of understanding even of what we consider to be a good working pattern or a good working day and how that sort of shifted a great deal since then mm. um, do you want to talk a bit about some of the works in the show you talk about uh, Harun Faraki uh, sure. his video um, well, there's, there's, there was two, or there is two, Haram Faraki works in this exhibition. There's one that you see right at the beginning, um, the work, workers leaving the factory, um, which is this drawing together of lots of different um, cinematic representations of work from the Lumiere Brothers, uh, one of the early films, to um, Hollywood cinema and uh, German avant-garde cinema. And then he also has another film towards the end of the show um, called A New Product, which is 2012. And um, I began by talking about how how these these two films in some way, as well as in relation to the, the representations in the show of the time and motion studies set up by the Gilbreths, um, kind of, in some sense for me, the, the relationship between these things pointed to what is problematic in some of the the ways in which re- recent discussions around art and labour exhibition was set up with the Haram Faraki film Workers Leaving the Factory at the beginning and then towards the end this film, A New Product, which records a brainstorming session um, at uh, a Hamburg-based business consultancy and it's very sort of, you know, fulfils all these these clichés of, like, throwing ideas around and it makes, you know, it's kind of, I suppose related to the cliches we imagine when we think of big organisations like Google, that they're going to have a ping-pong table in mm-hmm. their boardroom and uh, that kind of thing. And I suppose um, what the relationship between these two works with all these time and motion studies dotted or the representations of the time and motion studies dotted around the show was showed that actually, you know, these 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 are effectively doing the same thing. They're optimising um, the productivity of the worker. They're allowing capital to extract the most value from the worker as possible. So although the process or the technology may look like, you know, may push you to think, oh, well, everything's completely changed now, the 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 result is um, football very similar. is very yeah. similar in terms of the relation. Yeah, in a way, what I quite liked is even that I, the, well, we all embody, I think, to some extent, the anxiety of uh, being busy mm-hmm. uh, and being seen to be busy mm-hmm. uh, in order to be as we deem to be it as an earlier to be productive mm. uh, and to be part of that kind of, well, I wouldn't say dialogue, mm. uh, but, uh, you know, that, that state or condition that we're sort of enforced into, well, slaved into, <laughs> perhaps by some. Um, I, you, you sort of talk a little bit about the, uh, the show itself and your problems and the ways in which it's actually the display. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about actually your problems with the presentation of the show, and then we'll get on to some of the films that you do like? But. Sure. Um, yeah, I mean the the show is on two levels, and the ground floor particularly seemed really dominated by these. I don't. Uh, I mean, I described them in my review as awkward wooden plinths, and yeah. I, I don't think I've got a better way of describing them because that's really what they are. Yeah. Um, and I didn't really understand why they were there. 
and these these kind of wooden structures um contain what is referred to i think in the documentation around the show as the contextual material so everything from the the photographs of the time and motion studies to children's ladybird books mm-hmm. um like you know the the postman the the nurse the teacher and so on so th- these are these sort of um kind of slightly retro ideas of work and and they're, they're, they're also within these wooden structures are some of the works like Inari Washiki's um, 2013 work, Recruit Agency for People Who Don't Want to Work, which I, you know, I just, I found it, I, f- I felt like the relationship between the works that were contained in these structures and the um, contextual material, um, it was, to me, very amateurish and okay. confusing. Yeah, some of the work actually sounds... Well, surprising. It's like Mary Volonaki's robot, Diamandini. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and some of the other kinetic works, um, Gregory Bassamian's Die Falla yeah. from 1997. Um, these kinetic works, they, they do seem surprising in this context, I have to say. But Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I found the... I've got a sort of pet hatred of kinetic art, as I was saying to you earlier, but... Um, uh, not to dwell on that, but I think the problem with, with those works, these works that sort of rely on technological novelty um is that they they contradict what what i was pointing to that was interesting in setting up um you know the the harren Faraki film of industrial mm-hmm. work and then more recent kind of post fordist work yeah, you know they, they contradict that yeah. interesting aspect and they go well look at all this novel technological stuff mm. um which it just seems to to have very little interest by in terms of the conceptual um work behind those yeah. things. Yeah, I mean, getting on to works that you do like. Yes. Uh, <laughs> uh, Guy Ben, uh, uh, Stealing Beauty from 2007, mm. uh, which does sound intriguing, I have to say, which mm. is they've uh, a drama they filmed undercover inside various IKEA stores. Yeah. Um, I, I, I guess it... Yeah, I, lo- <laughs> I mean, I, lo- I, I really loved that yeah. film. Um, you can watch it on YouTube as well, and I've watched it again. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a kind of... The film it's it's in it's in it's filmed in various IKEA stores and it's Guy Benner, the artist, along with his family, kind of you know having um, pretending to cook. They're not actually cooking because obviously the people in IKEA would start <laughs> getting concerned if they started cracking eggs into yeah. the the showroom pans. Um, so it's them sort of miming work, uh, working in the kitchen or having a conversation over the breakfast table. And it was incredible. I mean, I found it very, very funny, but I also felt like it. Um, there was some. The, the dialogue is, I thought, was absolutely brilliant, and it really pointed to something um, interesting about uh, relationships and sexuality in relation to work, which is something that I feel hasn't really been addressed so far in lots of the debates around art and labour and so on. So it seemed to point more to how dominant ideology is kind of um, refracted into the domestic sphere or, or played out in the domestic sphere. Um, so I thought that was, was a really, really yeah. interesting work. Um, and they were curated by Andrew Norman Wilson and Ailey Nash. And this yeah. was a side programme in addition to the actual exhibition itself. Yeah. So these were a film. Were these actually part of the show? Were they actually in the cinema? Yes, they're part of the show. They're, they're upstairs, so they're above um, the floor that ha- the, the first floor. They're on the second floor. And they're just, it, it's, a, it's basically, a, um, I think it's three, three screen, you know, three monitors. Right. 
um, that are playing each one playing a, a few different films. I didn't mention all of them in the review, but I think in total there's something like nine films they selected, mm. and I thought that was really terrific. Um, the films they they selected all worked very well together and and kind of for me turned into kind of couplets or or okay. partic- you know there was almost like theme themes within the films of this smaller curated display yeah you sort of mentioned a sort of love to loathe um or love to love uh, Mark Lecky video yeah, yeah uh, green screen refrigerator yeah i i i i i found that i mean i i find mark lecky's work interesting um but i am very suspicious of you know what I suppose has um, become this this interest in object oriented ontology or speculative realism mm-hmm. and the way that's been adopted within the art world and I suppose now I'm also suspicious of the way the critique of that is being recycled into a kind of another thing yeah. another trend um, and he seems very much to be um, drawing off this interest in getting rid of any mediation between subject and object so that the film is um, these very high gloss refrigerators and different kind of coming out so the fridge door opens and there's all these vegetables sort of sitting there and the vegetables speak to you yeah. so and the, as I said the, the, the something about the voiceover that sounds very sort of prog rock to me yeah. which you know is another thing that I, I, I can't stand um, <laughs> but but despite that I found it incredibly seductive yeah. um, as I have done with pretty much all of Mark Leckie's work, I find it really, really, really seductive, and I don't know how to no, I, I sort of manage that. Yeah. I mean, what I find also interesting about Mark Leckie is also, I wonder, I mean, I know he's part of the debate around speculative realism, or mm. he seems to have been co-opted and yeah, co-owned yeah. by that narrative, and I I do wonder how, how far he is complicit with that or how far he's critical himself with it. I wonder... Chris, you want to say something at this point? <laughs> no, I, just, I, I think he's completely complicit, yeah. though. I mean, it's like his exhibition in Nottingham, where he yeah. he had he'd organized talks around the O O O thing. So I think, yeah, he's very much involved. In the, I think yeah. it's part and parcel with it. But I think the seduction stuff is kind of interesting because it's it's it, that's how things like that work. I mean, I mm. guess I wasn't seduced by that piece, mm. and I thought it was that kind of you know you were talking about the novelty of technological stuff. I thought yeah. he was just kind of performing that really. Right. And so, uh, but then seduction's how those things work, mm. I suppose, as well. Like if you're, you know, even if to connect yeah. all of these things, I think you know we all enjoy a laugh online, <laughs> yeah. and you know it's like seduction is kind of one of those ways that mm. these things slip through, or you know you indulge yourself in a little blog, or you know there's the mm. kind of novelty of technological stuff, and it brings you in. But maybe that's oversimplifying it. No, I think those black fridges are very seductive. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I suppose maybe it was also the relationship between um, that film, which had this sort of seductive quality or, you know, there was this sort of sex appeal in in all these um, static commodities Mm -hmm. um, and how that related to something like the guy Ben Nur within that display, which was seemed to have this underlying current of thinking about domesticity Mm -hmm. and sexuality in a more critical way. so maybe from it, I, I haven't quite figured it out, but there was something about the relationship between the films in that display that that um, they, they they did seem something more interesting and critical there. Yeah, you mentioned the Neil Balufa video, "People's Passion, Lifestyle, Beautiful Wine, Gigantic Glass Towers, All Surrounded by Water" from mm-hmm. 2011. I guess that similarly evokes that sort of seduction of uh, yeah. sort of young young professional life. Yeah. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about what that video was like? And yeah, sure. Um, I mean, I, 
I think the the film is basically he did a bunch of interviews with people in I think it's Vancouver. Yeah, shot in Vancouver. Um and he did interviews with these young professionals, but the interviews kind of coalesce. Uh, I, I think when he was interviewing them, he asked them, describe your ideal place to live. But the way that the film's been cut is that it comes together to look as if they are actually describing mm -hmm. the same place and a real place, um, which, you know, before I realised that it had just been cut in that way, I just presumed this was some sort of, like revolting Ballardian lifestyle yeah. development in Vancouver that I didn't know about. Um, and But but the, it's just kind of, you know, I think there was something, again, there was something interesting to me in the language and the way that the sort of language proliferated in, in that film. So these, these references to, oh, you know, I, I, I can't remember exactly, but things like, oh, I want to be in front of uh, flowing water. I like the sound of water. I like to sit outdoors and, you know, on, on my wooden table and have a nice large glass of white wine or, you know, it was just this sort of banality of mm. it that um, was was kind of interesting. And maybe, yeah, it's a very similar thing to what's going on in that Mark Leckie video. I suppose. Yeah, is, uh, do you feel like in the, in the sense that somehow the idea or the, in a way it looks like an advert, you yeah, know, yeah. and how we've embodied that seeming advert? Yeah. Um, is that is it is it about that play of those two things or is it being yeah i suppose the thing that's different yes i think that's true um and i suppose what it seemed like that film or what what you know what really seems revolting to me about it is the way that um there's it's so clean and slick and um there's you know it's n not what you want a city to be well mm -hmm. it's not what i want cities to be like it it's it's what I find most depressing about the way London is going mm -hmm. as a city, you know, a new build block of flats with a Tesco metro underneath every one of them. Mm -hmm. um, but so so that seemed to be more like that, whereas something like the Mark Leckie with this appeal to nature that's going on, like, you know, um, all these these all this organic material, the relationship between organic material and, and um, inorganic material, um, that I don't think that's something you quite get in the Neil Balufa, but it seems to sort of like lurk between bit beneath the surface because that's sort of what's um, absent, or mm -hmm. or that's you know the, the well, you li thought, life is kind of absent there. It's in been some suppressed. Sense. Yeah, in some yeah. Sense. yeah. Uh, Omar, did you have any thoughts about the works on display at the uh, Flag Show? Or? Um, it, it's complicated because as a, um, it's complicated because I. I've actually I used to work at Facts and was very much aware of the aware of the genesis of that exhibition um, in its different forms and the conversations around it and I, I do think it's an incredibly exciting idea or proposition um, but I think what the show doesn't actually do is I don't think it actually redefines working life in any way and I think it's merely kind of it's like taking things around and juggling them in different formations and actually assuming and this is what I think you're saying in in the review is that there's something a bit patronizing about mm -hmm. this idea that we aren't aware that our lives have shifted in this way and that we, we the way we negotiate our work and our relationships and our lives has completely been altered by our relationship to technology and so I uh, that's my, my problem with it but it does raise some interesting questions that when you talk about kinetic art and the um, the kind of the the problem of 
you know, presenting these works in these kinds of institutions, because fact, although as a, an art center, it very much its USP is that it's trying to pioneer work around artists work around technology, and so how do they do that without? playing up to a particular expectation and I think what you often end up seeing is these kind of works like this Diamondini piece by Mario Bellanicchi which is these robotic which is kind of what some of the audiences want to see is this kind of something that's a bit fetishistic mm. but what I think could be interesting is if they played with that fetishism and um, developed something that critically um, exposed it and actually the works that in the show, like like the Lecky, which you discuss, discuss, I think are seductive, but I don't think they critique um, these kind of um, this this notion of fetishism of technology. So, therein, that those are my, in a nutshell, my kind of feelings around the show. And I, I also there is this other thing is that it's worth mentioning this project is tied to a larger research consortium called the Creative Exchange, which is based at the Royal College of Art, and this is one output of that. And again, it's this idea of when people are doing incredibly dense research. So this project has, I think, about like eight PhD researchers working oh, on right. things to do with it, for example. And it's like, how do you synthesize very dense research information into one output or one component? In this case, an exhibition t uh, picking one of the themes of that you know, the, the creative exchange. But this is tied to that. And I think these awkward plinths that you talk about m might be a way for them to be trying to show or illustrate the wealth of uh, knowledge, research and mm. efforts, sweat, mm. blood and tears that's gone mm. into it. But I don't I think as as viewers, the more the the more effortless it seems, then the 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 more obvious that there's been work going into it. So yeah. But is it quite a dense show in that respect? I mean, in terms of the actual material available to see, yeah, is, it, is it densely presented? Um, it's it, the downstairs certainly isn't. Right. The upstairs is a little bit more. It's it's you know it's sort of there's. I mean, maybe it's a very simplistic way of thinking about it, but it seemed to me that there was almost like three mm -hmm. aspects to it. There was the work commissioned through the Creative Exchange that Omar just mentioned. Um, there was these sort of kinetic works that some some of those cross over to the creative exchange thing, and then there was um, film works and the film you know there was the Haram, mm -hmm. two Haram Faraki films and then this display that I mentioned as well as um, a film by uh, Andrew Norman Wilson who who was one of the curators of that, mm -hmm. um, but there there sort of seemed to be these three different strands and I think that. And then actually maybe four, because then there's also the contextual material that's dotted around. And, and it didn't quite cohere for me. Um, but it wasn't so much that it was densely presented, more that there was sort of lots of okay. different things going on. I just wondered when you talked about this, well, when Omar discussed this sort of the level in which the sort of research that's gone within it, mm -hmm. if that was evident in the show itself, how that material was relayed, if it was, and how successfully it may have been done. Um, but if it's not actually felt, then... I, I don't. I mean, I don't know what kind of research is being done, but I suppose actually what I might just said that I think is totally true is that there was something about this that seemed a bit patronising, as if mm -hmm. people like, haven't thought, you know, oh yeah, um, I am working a lot more, or I'm, you know, I don't have an hour long lunch break, yeah. I don't do a nine to five, especially. I mean, those those jobs still exist, but generally within the arts they don't, and I would imagine more people who are involved in the arts go and see an exhibition than people who aren't. Mm -hmm. um, 
And so in that sense, it seemed a little bit late to the game. It seemed like, come on, we've been talking about this for yeah. quite a while well, there's now. One, one work you discussed by Alan Rostenberg, the sort of 14-hour clock, I guess that's... Uh, yeah, and that's yeah. from... When's that? I mean, that's, that was... 97. Mm, yes, yeah. and that, that's... I mean, that's a, that was one of the contextual... The things within the contextual display. So that was... That's from um, uh, music, music, what's it from the the Lowell Na- National History Park, historical park for labour and industrial history in Massachusetts, and that was just shoved in as a kind of contextual material. Right. And I just thought, well, what uh, what about? I don't understand. Yeah. What, why is this sitting next to, you know, um, these Anari Washiki? It, it just right. seemed yeah. like, and so maybe in that sense, the hodgepodge quality of it was where. Unfortunately, instead of um, instead of you know the research coming through mo- more coherently, it came out as a bit of a hodgepodge. Indeed, um, Chris, I just wanted quickly d- uh, talking about this sort of uh, working uh, in terms of our labour, yes, uh, and the idea of the algorithm. Do you feel that you work harder? As an algorithm, in terms of actually supplying your algorithm, I was quickly going to add that in at the end. <laughs> yes, <laughs> the short answer. To yes. That. Okay. Good. Anyone else have anything else to add to? Uh, to oh, we're reaching a, a drawing a blank here. Okay, lovely. Well, that, that, in that case, then it only leaves me to say my deepest thanks and gratitude towards Chris. Thank you. Five uh, Oslek, Omar Khalif, and Lan Abtagogati for joining us today. Um, I'm from Art Monthly, and uh, all these ideas and further. Uh, features and reviews will be dis- are discussed in further detail in the magazine. Uh, my name is Chris McCormack. Thank you very much. Bye bye.